Welcome to the Women Shifting Gears podcast driven by Hemmings. I'm your host, Amanda Busick. Our podcast aims to introduce you to the inspirational women who showcase their talents and leaderships across the automotive and motorsports worlds. And even when I have my own moments of doubt and uncertainty, it is with this community of women that I'm reminded of what is possible. Thank you all for sharing in this space of authenticity with us. Here we go. Steffi Bow is a former three-time women's world motocross champion. She also has 20 years of experience in the motorcycle and two-wheel electric transportation industry. And in September of 2019, Steffi co-founded Innit Esports with two other women from motorsports. Innit focuses on sim racing and the development of women in gaming. Innit is also the official promoter of the AMA Esports tournaments and a preferred channel on Twitch for two-wheel racing. Steffi also serves on the advisory board of WIST, which stands for Women in Sports Tech, and continues to mentor women in sports and gaming to help grow the community. She was born and raised in Italy, and Steffi Bow joins us on the Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings. Welcome to the Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings. I'm Amanda Busing, and joining us today is a former motocross world champion, now entrepreneur. She is the owner of Init Sports and Init Esports. Welcome to the podcast, Steffi Bow. And Steffi, I want to go right to the beginning with you. I had read that there wasn't really a time of your life that you didn't know of things with two wheels. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And uh, I really appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, that's a very fun uh, intro that you put out there because no, I started riding like at four years old. So yes, I've pretty much been at least on two wheels my entire life. What was your earliest memory around motorcycles? Well, I have to say the most found memory when I was very young was the fact that I was um, already had the, the motorcycle. My parents already bought me a little motorcycle and I was riding around in the field in front of the house. And then one day my father comes back because he used to um, do some enduro riding. So like going in the, in the in the trails and whatnot. So he comes back from one of his adventures and he tells me, you know, I just came by a very small motocross track and I think we should go there. And uh, he comes, he's there home and we look at mom and then he said, okay, let's go all dressed and then follow me. And I was like six years old and by going after my father, you know, on the on the trails to get to a little motocross track. That was definitely my fondest memory that kind of like sparked everything. I can see your smile through your face as you're even talking about that story. Can you still remember it pretty vividly? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I can still remember exactly how I felt when I was following my dad and, you know, like, and, and go to this little motocross track. And then the story gets even sweeter because once we got there, there were other kids riding and we were completely oblivious of what the sport was at that point, right? And so we got there and my dad said, you know what, I'll go in the track, you know, that's the direction, be careful and have fun. And in about like one hour time, I was fastest than all the other kids in there. <laughs> so my, the other parents there, you know, ask my dad, say, where are you coming from? And my dad say, well, we came from the fields, you know, from down well, that way. And that kind of like how it all started. And yes, I totally remember it. Well, I got the pleasure of reading your background to get up to speed for this interview, but uh, we do hear an accent. So let me let you tell us where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I'm from the land of a very good wine, very good pasta. <laughs> And a lot, a lot, a lot of history. So, yes, I'm from Italy. What part of Italy did you grow up in? North Italy. I'm from a little town uh, near Lake Como. So, in the very north of uh, of Italy. Very beautiful area. And, yes, a lot of people say, why did you leave Italy? And I'm like, eh, I follow my career. I had the desire to be a, a racer. So, When you look at your childhood, were there other hobbies or things that your family were a part of growing up? 
Well, I mentioned that my mom and dad, they were a fan of the sport, but not really like participant. My dad had a motorcycle, but he never competed and whatnot. So that was one of the things that I was, of course, attracted to. But uh, my family always gave me the opportunity to try different sports like uh, swimming and gymnastic and whatnot. Soccer, because, of course, in Italy, you do that. (laughs) But I don't know. I just felt back always to motorcycling, you know, and uh, winning every weekend or almost every weekend when I was very little, you can beat that. So you just want to keep going back, right? So yes, I did try other sports, but motorcycling was what I was attracted to. What do you think it was that attracted you to it? Was it the speed, the competition? I think at a very young age, it was just the fact of winning. You know, sure. <laughs> I mean, if you win and you're successful, you're a little kid, or, you know, and bring home a trophy every every weekend, you know, it, you really cannot go wrong for, with that, right? So I was lucky enough that I guess I had some talent. So therefore, you know, it, it was coming easy for me to do it. So that plus the winning, you know, like be able to travel a little bit with the family, you know, and have all the family experience because it is, you know, racing, it is a one person on the vehicle, but it does take the village to make it happen. So, well, I imagine even back then it was pretty rare and random for a girl to be on two wheels and competing. What was that like for you? Well, it was a different way of, um, you know, approaching the sport for sure, because we know racing and motorcycle, you know, racing as well, it's very much male dominated. So, you know, it was definitely out of the ordinary in Italy. But I was very lucky because my parents never put any question mark on the fact that I was a little girl. So therefore, you know, I always say, oh, this is cool. I'm right there behind the gate with my helmet on, like all the other kiddos. And then, you know, they just kept doing and kept loving what I I did. I will say that it's probably because of my parents that I was able to grow up with that mentality and continue to see any not difference whatsoever, you know, throughout my racing career. It's almost like sometimes I feel like, oh, well, girls are too fragile, or maybe that's why we wouldn't necessarily find females on the track at that age. Did your parents have any fear for your safety? Well, fear, of course. I mean, I think every parent has fear for their little kiddo, you know, if they're going to get hurt or whatever. But as I said, you know, my mom and dad, they were very, I guess, ahead of their time, you know, and they just wanted to, for me, to do what I love to do, you know, and whatever that was going to be, they were going to support it. So there was never any question if I was capable or not capable. If it was something that I liked to do, they were... Um, pushing through and and make me, you know, realize my dreams. What did your friends think about it? Well, it depends what age. (laughs) Yeah, no, when you were younger, I just think it's so fascinating that you had this, you were traveling around on a motorcycle. I mean, I'm sure your friends were just in awe of you. Well, you know, there are a, Different stages of the life, even when I was very, very young, when you are like elementary school and something like that, there was not really any difference because you still, you didn't really hang out with friends in the weekend yet, you know, so for me, it was like, oh, during the week, you know, I'm just with my friends at school and whatnot, and in the weekend, I get to do this awesome thing, this riding and racing motorcycle. But then when you start to grow older, then there are a little bit of difficulties and different different thing happens in, in life because when you start to, to create a community with your peers, you know, and they go maybe to the cinema or whatnot in the weekend, and then you're going to go racing. So it, it, it turned to be a little bit difficult, but, you know, for me, I always was uh, um, attracted to the fact that I was good at it. So, you know, I was doing sacrifices because I thought, you know, that that what I wanted to do. And I can tell you a little bit more, like at six years old, I looked at my mom and dad in the eyes and I say, one day I would become the best motorcycle racer and I would move to the United States of America. Well, you accomplished both. Yes. (laughs) It's like you speak truth into the world and you did it. Wow. Incredible. That was actually going to be my next question was when did you know that you could make a professional career out of this? But I guess at six that something inside of you knew that uh, you had the talent. What about your talent made you so good? Uh, I would say that uh, the capability of understanding a motorcycle right off the bat, you know, and have the uh, opportunity to ride it without having even any coaching, 
I'm not really sure where that came from, but that would happen, you know. And uh, I was just uh, learning, you know, very quickly. So I guess the capability to watch others, what they were doing and apply, you know, that's something that came natural to me. Then I'm a person that never gives up. So, you know, like, again, I guess from my parents, you know, and uh, just uh, keep going and keep doing things. And when uh, you apply yourself and you do the sacrifice that needs to be done because there is no shortcut in sport or in life. So, you know, keep doing, working hard and likely a little bit of talent that things comes together. Well, it sounded like that uh, I imagine with all the wins that came attention your way. When did the notoriety of your skill start picking up in your life? Yes, I would say when I was about 17 years old, um, about that age, I turned professional in my country in Italy. And uh, it was a very weird time for me. (laughs) I mean, I was was, uh, like a starting to be on TV, start, and this was before social media, right? Before all of that kind of opportunity to be your own content creator, right? So there were like opportunities for me at that age where, you know, like uh, um, location were asking me to be put on their flyer to promote events and whatnot. And at 17, you are a teenager. So the cockiness comes to you full speed. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your honesty of it. How did you, you know, what, uh, did you have a mentor or was there someone that kept you grounded in your life? Um, Well, back then I didn't, you know, and I think it's also part of uh, becoming a professional athlete. Like looking in hindsight, you have to be like that if you want to be successful. You have to believe you are the best in the world because if you don't do that, then mentally, which is where everybody crashes, you know, when you want to be uh, the best you can be, it becomes difficult, right? So you really have to be like that. And I had that part. And then, you know, growing older, you know, you learn that it's not really necessary to to be that cocky, but it comes with age, right? It comes with age and with the with the experience. So, even though if I looked at myself back then, I will hate to be around myself. I think it's a, it's something that I needed to do to be able to achieve what I did. When you think of uh, the mentality it takes to be a competitive athlete, as well, is that sometimes the hardest part? I think it is the hardest part, absolutely, because talent, you know, if you're born with that, you know, you identify what you really like, it gets you very far, right? But then the mental aspect is the one that uh, uh, it really, really makes a break a, a champion in, in, in what I experienced firsthand, but also what we can see in the world of, of racing in particular. It is so important to be surrounded with people that uh, can believe in you in the right way, you know, and also it's very important to show vulnerability with your own team, right? Because it's because of of, uh, the opportunity to be vulnerable, therefore to talk it through what's going on, that you can find a solution to continue to to grow and therefore, you know, achieve better and better things in your racing career. You're 17 years old. You went professional. You were competing against men and women, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so when I was 17, I was racing both, you know, in the, the women class over in Italy and the Italian titles, I won that uh, seven times. And then, uh, you know, I started to compete with the, with the guys too professionally. And I'm the first woman to race professionally in Italy. I won a title there against the men in Italy. And then, you know, like my little dream that I had at six about wanting to go to America, it started to creep back in, right? So before that, I said, okay, so that Next step will be to race in the world championship. And then after that, I can go to, to the United States. The story evolved a little bit different. It wasn't straightforward, like I just say it, but it was very cool. You know, you're at that age and you're competing, you're beating men. Uh, again, underneath the helmet, you know, the motorcycle does, doesn't know a gender, but the boys know that you're a female. How did they receive you? Um, I think the biggest difference was uh, the turning professional. When I wasn't professional, I was in the amateur ranking still. It was a very much uh, um, like the, the boys didn't take that very well. You know, it was more like, uh, I, I guess it's also cultural, 
not just in Italy, but in the world, you know, like when you kind of play for fun, now is better, I like to think. But back then it was a lot like, oh, girls should not do this and whatnot. And then family influence kids and therefore the kids act like the parents, you know, and so on and so forth. But when you become professional, at least in my experience, they all think it went away. And uh, it was all about, we were all the same, we were there, you know, in a way to do our job and therefore, you know, to compete to the best of your ability. So for me, the switch was there, you know, turning from the amateur ranking to the professional ranking is where, uh, you know, like uh, everybody was like, okay, you're here with everybody else. And you were there and won championships, but were you ever motivated being the female? Ah, that's a good question. Motivated. I guess I motivated myself because I was a female, but uh, I don't think there was, you know, the outside world that they were pushing extra, you know, for the fact that I was a female. If anything, the opposite, you know, it was more like, uh, why you keep doing this? And again, I'm a person that really doesn't take a no for an answer. So it's like (laughs) every time you say, no, you cannot do it. I'm like, okay, watch me. Where do you think that confidence comes from? I feel like it was uh, from very early age. You know, like um, every human being develops a lot of like uh, their personality when you're very young. And I, I can tell you, I go back to the fact I was super lucky to have my parents. They always believed in what I wanted to do. And they were there supporting me no matter what. So they kind of instilled in, in me, they wanted to do what I feel like I'm capable of it and um, work hard. And therefore, with results coming, you continue to build the confidence and uh, Yeah, that's, I think, when it happened. I mean, we're all very lucky that you were introduced to a motorcycle, but can you even imagine if that moment didn't happen for you when you were four years old? I can't imagine it, but, uh, you know, like it it would be probably a very different life, you know, if that would not happen. But then again, who knows, you know, like because my parents treat me like that because I like motorcycle, but I feel like they would have treated myself me in the same way if I would have picked a different route, right? And if somebody, something else would be the same passion, maybe would it be the same, you know, outcome? Who knows? Well, when you talk about different paths, you said you did wind up in America, not in the way that you had planned. How did you get over to the U.S.? Yes. So it was a funny story. So I, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to become the first woman to compete in the World uh, Motocross Championship with the men in the history of the sport. So back in the days, this was how it was happening. You had to do a qualifying. Right. And the qualifying was based on lap times, so fastest lap times. So each country was sending about five riders per country for per nation. So I go Italian, I go to the Italian qualifies and I got the third fastest time. I was on cloud nine. I'm like, oh my God, I did it. I did it. I'm like, I'm making history, you know, like I'm showing everybody that girls can do this and hopefully open doors for more girls, right? Then a couple of days later, I get a phone call from the Italian Federation, which tells me we decide not to send you because you are a woman. And that, again, you know, the fact that I don't take no for an answer, (laughs) I figured out a different route. And I'm like, okay, you know, like uh, if I cannot go and do this right now, I'm going to make it happen in a different way. So my idea to come to America, I just got shifted, you know, like instead of going after doing that, you know, I ended up doing United States first. But the funny thing is that it did came, come a full circle. It came all the way back around. So, but yes, yeah, so to, to come to the U.S., it was that the decision point, you know, to to come over because I was denied my opportunity in in, uh, in Europe. And I'm like, I'm going to do it in the U.S. then. So you show up in the United States at that point. Uh, from what I had uh, read, you knew no English. Mm-hmm. I believe you showed up with an English dictionary. That's right. I did. Was there any, were you hesitant at all about this new adventure? Well, hesitation, I don't know if it was hesitation or... Uh, um, well, I'm just I'm just blown away by the fearlessness. Oh, I cannot I can tell you. My wife always say you don't understand the concept of fear. <laughs> it just doesn't enter your yeah. world. And I guess it happens because again, I think it's on this early stage of the de- de- development times that 
you know, I got to be in a position that my parents told me that you can be whoever you want to. And then I really took that to the heart, you know. So I don't, I will not really say hesitation. I think there was um, the unknown, you know, because uh, coming in a country that I did not speak the language, but the desire to really prove to myself and to the rest of the world that it can be done. It was just like the driving force for me. I think one of the things that's also fascinating, because we all can look at like different phases in our lives, but as we had mentioned earlier, this is well before social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is also probably before you even had Google Maps on your phone. Uh, that's a recent uh, ad in the last uh, decade or, or so. So when you look back at this time and you land in the U.S., did you have a point of contact? or, yes. or Okay. <laughs> so what happened was this. I came in the U.S. in 1998 for one event and was at the, uh, one of the World Cup events for women. And I came here with a couple of friends and just totally like vacation style. And uh, I was sponsored by Kawasaki when I was in Italy. So I wrote a letter a full-on mailed letter to Kawasaki, United States, by telling their story, you know, written with the dictionary on my side, right? And tell them what this all was this all about. And then uh, I received a mailing letter back saying, we can give you a motorcycle to ride this event. And a sponsor, like a dealership, they will support, you know, there. So I took the opportunity, came here, Won that race in 1998. <laughs> yes, and then, and then uh, that was the start, you know, like, so I won the race, you know, like couldn't speak the language around with a dictionary, but Kawasaki saw that. So they immediately came over and say, can we give you a contract for next year and come and so you can come and do the whole series and start racing with the men because that's what they, they wanted me to do, you know, like uh, compete you know, with the, with the men in supercross and motocross. And of course, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, I'll come and I'll do all of this. So that was the moment where, uh, you know, I was able to decide. And again, it was difficult because not knowing the language, but I did have a little bit of a support, meaning that uh, Kawasaki sent me out with the motorcycle and the parts and then a dealership kind of like took me in. And I stayed with this family, you know, like almost like I had an au pair type of situation, you know, like, and uh, oh man, there are so many stories from back in those days so that young kids nowadays, they were like, you are crazy. <laughs> you did all of that kind of stuff. But hey, you know, when you really want something hard enough, you do the sacrifices. So, Did you notice any differences in the sport from Italy and now being in the U.S.? Uh, the glamour. Sure. sure. United States, you know, like it's a, it's a country that really knows how to show things, you know, so that was definitely a big, a big eye-opening situation for me. And then, of course, there was a lot of, I mostly then the racing was just the lifestyle, right? A lot of different ways to even eat, right? We eat pasta and pizza and pasta and pizza in the U.S. is not the pasta and pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, what is this stuff? I don't understand. Understand, <laughs> you know. So it was most, mostly the cultural shock. But again, for me at least, you know, I've always been like, if I if I want to do something, you know, there is a mountain in front of me, and I cannot go through it. I figure out a way to go underneath, fly over, go around it. But I'll find a solution. You win the first race that you competed in in American soil. What do you remember about that day? Well, there is a, uh, okay another pre-event that I did in the United States before that one in 1998. So we are going backwards in the, in, in the, um, explaining the time timeline, but there was this event that I came to know that was in California. It was an international women event where there was this woman, Mercedes Gonzalez, which she was the most, um, I would say, um, the, the woman that had the most, uh, results, um, known worldwide in motocross. Okay. And me growing up, I was 14 years old then. I'm like, I want to be like her. Actually, I want to be her. Right. So 
we came to know about this event and uh, flew in from um, from Italy to LA and got you know like because we had some Americans coming racing in the in Italy the the year before so we have this pen pal you know situation going on so I'm like well you came to Italy I want to come to the US would you help me so I borrow a bike you know came to this race and I beat Mercedes and I won the race <laughs> and I'm so like back then, it was like, oh my God, I just beat my idol. And we are very good right. friends now, you know. And it's almost like, you know, the changing of the guards that happens in sports. So um, for me, it was like the moment they're like, oh my God, you know, like this is so cool. For her, she wasn't very happy back then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but again, you know, like... Uh, as you grow, you grow older. And because I've been in her situation, you know, many years later, it's actually good to get the young blood to come in, you know, and say, okay, now it's your turn to do it. So that was my very first experience in the US. But I was 14 years old. Again, it was like one of the things I did. I was not even professional yet in, in, in Europe, right? The, the one that really changed uh, everything was that that one race in 1998 with Kawasaki, where I came I won the event. I entered the same day, day the one-day event, the um, uh, motocross national with the men that day. And uh, uh, by doing so, I ended up, I almost qualified right off the bat like that. And and then was when I opened up the door for Kawasaki say, yes, we want to sponsor you, come over and, and so on. And then, yeah. And then I came in 1999 to stay for the whole year. I won every race I entered with the girls. <laughs> And then I, I started to gather points to, to get the professional license to compete in Supercross. And uh, I, I remember I was racing with Travis Pastrana. He is a very famous, okay. you know, uh, motocross guy. And I was based in Pennsylvania back then and he's in Maryland. So we became friends, you know, and started racing. And he was winning in, with the guys and I was getting second. Sometimes they were waiting for me on the finish line jump and we were doing tricks on the last jump together. And for me, it was like a, the life, you know. Sure. Uh, dreams come through one after the other. But they do come through because you work hard too. They just don't happen just by chance, I think. It's kind of, you know, it's one thing everyone talks about the the dreaming big and, and as you just said, the effort that goes on behind it. It also requires a ton of sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you think of the support system that had to be around you to to almost provide grace and the sacrifice that you had to, to make, how important was it to have those key people in your life? Oh, it is absolutely the number one thing you, you, you want to have to be able to, to be successful. And, uh, it's hard. It's very hard. Like in motorcycle, but also in car racing, it's, it's, and in sport in general, it's not easy, you know, to, to stay on top. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure, mental pressure, as we were saying earlier. So you need to have that support group around you. Then if for some reason, you know, you're growing out of your teenage year and therefore you think that, uh, oh man, can I really do this? Then you have to have that group around you, you know, they continue to put the beliefs and say, yes, you've done it. You can do it. You know, let's figure it out a way to get, go back on top if you're not at that moment. But yes, it does take a village. You know, a lot of a lot of people, maybe they are naive to the sport. They don't, they don't know. They think there is the Lewis Edmonton for instance, but there is a big team behind, you know, that helps that person to be, you know, the one to take their claims. In the U.S., you would win three national championships. Was there someone in your professional time here that uh, you would have considered a mentor or someone that had a specific role in your development? Back then, the mentorship concept that we know right now was not very very open-minded. Usually your mentor were like your family, right? You know, so, or you were taking some advice from people in your team, but it was not really developed the concept of having a mentor that maybe has been there before, that can help you. I was not lucky enough to have that, you know, but I do realize how important it is. So I'm the one first ends up to do this now for other girls that they wanted to come into, into the sport. I want to go back to uh, the circle back of the story. You did get to go back to Italy. I believe it was 2005. How did that yes. conversation happen? 
So when I came here in the U.S., it was 1999, and I started collecting, you know, like uh, those uh, championships <laughs> and uh, and so many different opportunities. And of course, I'm not a shy person. So with the, the racing came also TV show. I was uh, featured on a couple of TV show and video games and all of that. So it was funny that I started to create a sort of persona around me that started to come back to Italy, you know. So therefore... Uh, in 2005, the Italians and the Federation came and knock and say, hey, we would like for you now to become the first woman to compete in the World Championship. And to me, it was a dream come true. But the fact that they came after I wanted to do it, it cost them. And they paid. Ooh. I was going to, did they ever apologize? They never apologized. They never did apologize, but I played it. I really did. I say, gentlemen, I will be super happy and honored to do this, but this is how much it's going to cost you. And they pay you. You know, like the very first time I would have done with dimes, I would have go and deliver pizza to get enough money to do it, right? But they deny it to me. And uh, But Italy is like that, unfortunately. It's a wonderful country, but if you want to succeed, you kind of have to leave the country for the country to want you back. Right? It's a very weird thing, but it happens in every field with Italians. You need to leave Italy, get what you want to do somewhere else, and then Italy comes calling. It actually sparks another question for me or a conversation point. And looking back in, in your career on the professional side in, in racing, did you act as your own agent? Yes, I did. Wow. Yes, I did. I had to because, you know, again, back then, all of this um, support structure that we are getting more and more accustomed today, it wasn't there. So it was me, you know, like uh, picking up the phone, making conversation. And I guess it was a little bit of this entrepreneur feeling that I have also right now after racing that was already hidden back then because I remember you know I even had a um, I, I went to school in Italy so when I was professional there I still go to school I did all my schooling because that was what one one of the things my parents were really much on to and I'm glad they were I went to schooling for accounting so I have an accountant degrees which I will never practice but it's good <laughs> to have because I own companies right now so I talk to the accounting team <laughs> and I know what they are talking about but um, I remember, you know, like uh, even back then for the school, you know, like I made a contract with the school. So I showed up with the, the I don't know how you say it in English, like the president, I guess, of the school. And I said, hey, you know, my racing brings me away uh, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So if you want me to come to this school, <laughs> we're going to have to make an agreement. So if I lose classes, you know, like I can recuperate. And even that, you know, came out as sort of like the, the mentality of agents to represent yourself. And I started back then and same thing with sponsor. My mom and dad, they own a butcher shop. So they had no idea, you know, how to go and ask for sponsorship. And I just went and did it. You know, would I have had an agent and would I have been better? Probably. But hey, you know, those were the cards that I was dealt with and I played them. When you look at your professional craft and your skill, how would you have described your driving style? I guess it's probably like a never give up attitude. That is like uh, what really, you know, um, makes me me, you know. I think that uh, even if it was hard, you know, my parents didn't come for money. They were, uh, they are a very, very humble, you know, um, family. So all the sacrifice, you know, to be able to do that really shaped me in the person that I am, you know, which is if you want something like uh, very deeply, you know, you you need to work hard, but you eventually you you get it. So for me, my my skill on the racetrack was also that. You know, like if you crash at the start, there was never a moment in my mind to say, "Oh well, today is just a day that's not going to happen." I was going to pick up the motorcycle and go back and pass as many riders as I could, you know, and sometimes even be lucky enough to pass them all, <laughs> you know, which was reinforcing the fact that they never give up attitude is what you have to have, at least for me, to be able to, to be successful. You were 28 years old and you were prepping for a new season. What happened? Yeah, that was a day. 
turning of, of uh, the career. I was uh, um, uh, on the rider back then, and uh, we were preparing for 2006 season, and I was with the factory team, and um, there was this big jump. It was an 150-foot jump. I still don't know what really happened. Matter of the fact, I came up short, and uh, both of my ankles exploded. They just didn't break. They exploded. You know, I guess I'm lucky they happened on the ankle and on my back, you know, but uh, yes, that was the moment that uh, we went to the to the emergency room, you know, a couple hours later and the doctor said emergency su- surgery right now, 1% chance that we can save your leg. And to me, still then, you know, they never give up. I talked to the doctor say, okay, but when can I go back racing? <laughs> So that it was, but that's kind of sim- similar to a lot of racer. Like you just hear coming in one side, it goes out the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, you have to fix me. But when can I go back racing? Well, this one was the one that did not get me back racing. Although a few years later, t- three years later, I did put my butt back on the motorcycle just to say that I could do, you know, a couple laps around the track. But yeah, that was the turning point. Um, that. With that injury, you know, I stay for six months bedridden, uh, about a year on a wheelchair. And then after that, you know, like I started to walk again. And uh, I have my legs, even though it took 10 years to fix my left foot. And I went all over the world. And every doctor I was uh, visiting was saying, it's impossible that you're walking. And my answer was, well, definitely you're not a doctor for me then, because clearly I just walked in here. (laughs) So, you know, kept going, kept going, and I'm glad that they never gave in, you know, to just get my left leg amputated. And uh, I do have my legs. I do lots of mountain biking right now. I try to stay away from motorcycling, you know, but uh, yeah, that was a turning point. But again, I was 28 years old, so I started looking it in a way, you know, after a few months of very being a dark spot, because of course, you know, like uh, the the life that I knew up to that point, all of a sudden stop like that. And it's like, now what? You know, I wasn't prepared. And if you're a racer, you think you can race forever, right? And then it comes all of a sudden like that. And I'm like, okay, so now what? What's going to happen? But thanks again to the family, I was able to turn around and say, you know, this can be a good opportunity to start a brand new career and be as successful, you know, and how many people can say that they have such a successful career up until 28? Lots of people, they just started 28, right? So I just turned negative into positive and move on the other side of the of the, the fence and be involved in the industry in a different way. You talk about the cycle of grief that happens from denial to anger to acceptance uh, on the denial side of it, when did it sink into you that this career was over? It took a long time, to tell you the truth. It wasn't immediate because, uh, again, you know, being always a person that doesn't take a no for an answer, like that was like, no, you cannot do this again. I'm like, ah, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm going to do this again. So it took some time to finally accept it. But um I would say probably I got hurt at the end of 2005, I think around 2007, the end of 2007, you know, I start saying, you know, probably this is not going to come back, you know, and uh, and then I have to, to turn things around. But I think it happened in a way that I was so focused to try to walk again back then. There was kind of like almost it became a natural evolution of, uh, of uh, events. Right. So the most important thing at that point became walking again. Did you ever struggle with anger around the event? No, I don't think there was anger. At first, I was kind of like uh, mostly disappointed on myself because I didn't know what happened. You know, like how could I have messed up a jump in that way? Right. So the first part were more like, uh, what did I do wrong and why? So started to analyze all of that part. And when there was not really an answer, you know, then you start thinking, okay, well, um, now what, you know? And then it's where it kind of became, instead of anger for what happened, it became more of the realization that life was not going to be anymore like it has been. And so I did go down the the rabbit hole, uh, very black uh, spot which happens but you know I was able to to come out of it and um, 
And I'm glad, you know, that part of me had that experience too, because I feel like in life, you know, everything and anything that happened to you teaches you something. And now for instance, having experienced that, I know I don't want to go back there <laughs> ever again. So I learned it. <laughs> what started to bring you out of that phase? I would say the very small step of wanting to walk or be able to walk again, because, uh, you know, like being an athlete and not be able to walk, it's it's very hard. And there are a lot of athletes out there that unfortunately they had that kind of in injury or like spinal cord injury. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult because if you are somebody that lives in bricked activities and then you cannot do that anymore it's it's really like the old world collapse on you but the fact that you have a, you know a little bit of gain every day you know it really turns your mind into a point where it's like yeah maybe it's not the same as before but it's better than what it was yesterday right and therefore you know if you start to accept it thinking in that way then everything that comes your way is always a win and on the backside of the injury, as you returned to life, you professionally returned back to the sport. What yes. did you What did you roll into at that point? Well, I kind of like went back and tried to see what uh, I could do, you know. And at that point, what I knew was an, I knew how to ride, right? So I ended up starting a, a, a motocross school at the very beginning, and it was very, very fun because I developed a technique which was uh, I couldn't show to people what to do right because I was on a wheelchair you know so I couldn't show them and then on crutches so I actually dove down and tried to figure out ways that they, uh, what I was trying to tell the rider was relatable so I started to use everyday example and why they work and that was amazing because a lot of people say oh I see what you mean because it's something that is relatable to everyday life. So my way of teaching things became very popular for a little while. You know, like people say, oh, my God, you need to go with Steffi because she tells you in a way that you understand what you need to do. And then see the athletes, you know, see the performance and the in improvement. You know, it was like a very satisfactory. So that's what I did at the beginning. And I got very good um experiences. I got to meet women around the world. And there is one story I want to share uh, in particular. Uh, there was this woman that connected with me from Iran. And uh, she uh, emailed me and she says, you know, like, uh, I, I know, you know, that you're becoming a very good on teaching, you know, how to ride. You're a former race, a former champion. And I would like to learn from you how to teach other women in Iran. And first she wanted me to go to Iran and I'm like, uh, no, thanks. I'm not coming there, but you're welcome to come here. <laughs> so she came over and we are still friends nowadays, but the story became so popular. We actually ended up being on CNN with that because back in the days, this was, I think, 2010 when uh, this happened. When uh, she came uh, here, she got a letter, an email from Iran say, you're trying to do something in our country back home that is forbidden. So if you come back here, we're going to stone you. And I'm like, uh, this is not going to happen. So let me call a few media, American media, you know, by 2010, my English was okay, right? Yeah. So I start calling a few media and, and then told the story. And then, you know, the story became worldwide. And, wow. uh, and then she went back there and she was able to have a little land where she was allowed to teach motorcycle riding to women. And she didn't get stoned. I'm glad. <laughs> So how to change a little bit, you know, even the country yeah. perception of things. And uh, sometimes it's just about telling stories, you know, and bring it to the audience, you know, experience of people. And that was one, you know, because we were able to tell this and what was going to happen, you know, to Nora. It didn't, you know, it didn't happen. So when you look at your role now, and I know um, we're jumping ahead of a couple of stops that you had um, professionally, but I do want to get to this side of it um, because you are very active in the mentoring side of, of your life now and, and the agency side that you have with Init Sports and Init Esports. How has that helped you find peace, maybe, uh, in the career that you had and, and how you can push forward what you loved so much? 
Well, um, I'll say that uh, right now I do a couple things. One, as you said, is the mentorship. And the mentorship, it's very rewarding because uh, be able to do something that I never had, was lucky enough to receive on this end, you know, and be able to do that for others. It's amazing. You know, seeing uh, um, there is a, spe- a specific girl that uh, I I have a special relationship with. She's from Zimbabwe. Her name is Tanya Muzinda. And uh, that's an amazing story. And you're going to hear a lot on on mainstream media very soon about that. Cannot say much more than that. But it's an amazing story. And and, uh, Tanya is from Zimbabwe. And be able, you know, to, to associate myself with somebody that is so far from me, you know, as possible and guide them through life, not only from the sport, but also from, you know, real life. It's incredibly rewarding. So I love that. And that brings me not only peace, but also joy. Right. And uh, on the business side of things, I'm now I'm very much focused on to esports. And the point why I'm focused on eSport is because I wanted to figure it out a way to open more doors to people into the motorsport industry. And uh, motorsport is expensive and it tends to be very much white male dominated. So for me, having lived a life that was all about breaking those glass ceilings, I felt like it was time again, you know, like uh, to come up with an idea to how to continue to do that. Right. And I think the esport and the digital world has the capability to open up uh, um, uh, the sport, so motorsport in general, to a bigger audience because it's a fraction of the price to participate. So you can become a digital champion now, you know, and uh, be able to do it in a way that you can be from any part of the world, from any ethnicity, any religious, any whatever, you know, like so completely, fully diverse and inclusive and uh, do it. And then by getting people attracted to the motorsport uh, industry as a whole, we have a better chance to then turn them into consumer of the motorsport industry. So this is what I'm doing right now. We are launching a campaign. It's about the quest in finding the world fastest motorcycle gamer. Okay. Yes. And uh, it's going to be worldwide and the people will participate in that to, to be able to, to win this title. And we work actually in direct correlation with the AMA, which is the American Motorcyclist Association, because they got it. They say, oh, my God, this is very cool that we can give a title to a digital person and give them the opportunity to be alongside the champion of in real life. And how powerful is that? Because in that way, you give other people that will never have a possibility to be a champion in real life to actually get a little bit of a taste of what it will be like. And then who knows, maybe somebody will say, oh, now I want to do it for real. Exactly that. And also they're immediately become ambassadors for motorsports worldwide. Indeed. Indeed. So this is what makes makes me a lot of joy and also sure. peace because, uh, you know, I feel like I'm trying to come up with a, a solution on uh, something that in our beloved motorsport world is being a problem for a very long time, which is diversity and inclusion. And um, let's see. We'll see if I'm going to be able to be right on this one, too. <laughs> well, not to say that I stalked you, per se, but one of the things that I like to do in preparing for these interviews is to look through someone's end of, in, in their social media mm-hmm. just to get an idea of who they are as an individual and, and what kind of makes them tick. And I have to say, um, specifically your Instagram, I couldn't find one photo that you just did not have this magnetic smile <laughs> on your face that just lights up the whole photo. And to the core of you, what inspires you? Um, I think to the core of me, what inspires me is the fact of or really wanted to do good. I really love to make people happy, you know, and, and trying to have my little contribution in the world to change the world a little bit for the better. So, you know, I really feel that uh, that's my calling. You know, I, I like to do that. And, uh, you know, I always try to help people, you know, and I think it also came from the fact that uh, I was in a wheelchair and I got a second chance, right? So therefore, be able to help others, it's so rewarding that uh, for me, it's what I wake up every day for. 
Steffi Bow on the Women Shifting Gears podcast driven by Hemmings. We are going to go into the hot lap. So if you were headed on a road trip, where would you go? <laughs> That's a very fun story because I'm a digital nomad right now. Okay. So be, being digital nomad means we move almost every month to a different place. But the, my favorite, favorite, favorite place in the world, if I have to say, is where I went for my honeymoon, which is French Polynesia. Oh, my God. That is very beautiful. So if I would have to possibility to take a plane right now, I would go there. You're in the French Polynesia. You're in a road trip. What are you driving? Oh, um, I would say, and this might surprise you, but probably an electric motorcycle. There you go. That doesn't surprise me. That's okay. amazing. Okay. I'm a very, a very, um, a person that really push for the electric movement. And uh, I think there is going to be a very good thing happening, not just in motorcycle, but also with the cars. And uh, I, that would be my vehicle of choice. Who's your passenger? My wife, of course. <laughs> Any music playing on this road trip? Uh, not so much. I'm not really like a person that really uh, dives into music a lot. It's, it's more like uh, the beat of the moment. Okay. So I kind of like go with that. But if we are talking about a an island in the middle of uh, the Pacific, it's probably going to be some kind of like island music, I will say. <laughs> uh, you, since you mentioned your wife, and again, this is me stalking you on social media, but it seems like you guys are, I saw you guys just celebrated an anniversary, four years, I believe yes, it was. Indeed. What is her impact on your life then? Ah, amazing, amazing. Uh, we met a few years ago, you know, and immediately you know when is the one. And uh, I proposed to her and uh, like a year after we met and then uh, we, we are together and it's super good. And she keeps me calm. That's the, the very incredibly amazing um, quality beside being beautiful and inside and out, you know, it's also like this uh, way for her to analyze everything and be calm. I don't know, probably comes from the fact that she is a math and physics um, um, professor, I would say, teacher, teacher. Uh, she works for NASA and uh, she does all of this thing with the mathematics. So you have to be, I guess, in the zone, you know, to get all the stuff right. and. That's that's what really helps me, you know, like uh, keep calm. Because as a racer, for me, it's like drop the gate. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Yes. <laughs> and and she, keeps, she, she reels me back a little bit. She said, okay, let's think of this in a couple different other ways. And for me, I'm like, I already analyze everything. Let's go, <laughs> you know. So I think we complement, uh, complete each other in a very good way. Well, Steffi, it sounds like your life has been quite the ride. And I just want to close out. If there was a conversation you could have had with yourself at 28 years old and the career and lifestyle that you loved was essentially gone right in front of you, what would you tell yourself? Well, it's a very odd question. It's a very odd question because uh, nobody, I think, ever wanted to be told or even yourself say, I, you cannot do this anymore. So I don't know what I will say to myself, but I can tell you this. I learn to turn things around and always look at the positive. So for me, I have learned from that, that uh, what I applied then is the way that I wanted to live the rest of my life, which it is, there is always a positive side on everything. Just have to find it and try to continue to look in that direction. Steffi Bow on the Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings. This Women Shifting Gears podcast, driven by Hemmings, is a production of GS Events.